You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Romans is about the good news of us giving our lives to Christ and that he made a way for us to be made right with God. And uh, the gospel is always about Jesus. So let's read in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So Paul is giving a point here, illustrated point. That's where this passage here is where we get the, the, the phrase in our wedding ceremonies, till death do us part, because it's a marriage covenant. But that's not his point here. His point is, is something else. He's using that as an illustration. So he says, so, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. So if the, uh, uh, the law applies to you while you're alive to the law, then you died with Christ. You're free from the law, so you actually have died. You've identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. When you rise to walk in newness of life, you're not bound to the law anymore. And that should be a great cause for celebration and rejoicing among believers. So... Now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead. So we were married to the law, then we died to the law, so we're not bound by it, just like a person is not bound to their marriage covenant if one of the uh, partners dies. So we're free from the law, and we're free to serve him. We said last week that you're going to serve something. You're going to serve something. So let's serve him. Uh, The young people, the college age uh, in our church years and years ago, they had T-shirts that said, he died for us, let's live for him. That was a great statement. It was like a, you know, out there in your face to their generation. So Paul goes on to um, say, as a result of this, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. That goes right in line with our theme this year of fruitfulness in 2017, that God wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. He wants you to move beyond where you are now. By the end of the year, we should grow and see more fruit uh, in our service to Him. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God. Isn't that great? Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. A lot of folks don't know the difference between the letter of the law and the Spirit of the law. Parents, please raise your children up knowing the difference between the letter of the law and the Spirit of the law. The letter of the law is the exact verbiage, the exact strict legalistic interpretation. Here's an example. Don't walk on the grass. So I've seen countless kids, okay, I'm going to run on the grass. I'm not breaking the rule. It says don't walk on the grass. I'm running on the grass. Well, that's the rule, but what's the spirit of the rule? What's the spirit of the law? Stay off the grass, all right? That's the spirit of it. So what we want to do is 
is now that we're free from the strict interpretation of the law, we want, we're free to follow the Spirit's leading and say, no, these are actually heart attitudes. These are, these are things that we can uh, move in and, and live in in freedom, not under the strict old legalistic interpretation of the law. So we are now free to serve Him. That's amazing. Uh, point number one today, we only have one point, and then we have 58 subpoints. I was talking to my brother uh, Thursday, right before I preached this same sermon the first time Thursday night. He lives in Florida, and he's a fireman, you know, and for years and years he was fireman in Texas. So he goes, I know you got a lot of firemen in your church. Just tell them, remind them that the wise men were firemen, and they were from Texas because they came from afar. That's really bad. Came from afar to Texas. So, anyway, reading about Paul here, did you know that Paul's dad was one of the guys crucified with Christ? One of the, you know, the thieves there on the cross. He said, he said here in the King James that my old man was crucified with Christ. So, don't forget that. All right, I want you guys, I want you guys to stay awake now. They're going to get better. All right. Well, he, Paul did travel to Las Vegas. He did. He said, all my friends at Caesar's Palace send you greetings. All right? Okay, so anyway. Okay, back on track. Number one, since we're released from the law, we're free to serve God. In verse 6, it says, but now we've been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. As a result, the result of this is that we can produce a harvest of good deeds. And um, so we have this wonderful opportunity of living a life in freedom, freedom from the law. And we talked about this last week, that, that, that it's very rigid and very wide open. It's wide open that we're free to do anything we want as Christians. But we're also bound by being responsible for and taking ownership of uh, what we do. So in other words, if we mess up, we have to live up to it. We have to uh, endure the repercussions. We have to live out the consequences of those things. Wow. When I was a school superintendent, I was a, don't, don't, don't not like me for this, but I was a strict non-conformist as far as dress codes go. I said, I don't want to give the kids rules. I want to give them principles to live by. So we had four dress code rules at our school. Clean, neat, modest, and appropriate. What's appropriate at the beach is not appropriate at school. What's appropriate at a funeral may not be appropriate at school. So just keep teach people principles to live by. That's the freedom. Then you have the freedom of choice of colors and you know all these kind of things that represent uh, the creativity of God. So I don't want to get in a in a discussion about school uniforms and that kind of stuff. But the whole idea is that we are free to serve God. And if you want to serve him by using your musical gifts, serve him that. If you want to serve using your homemaking skills, if you want to use it in the, in the area of the arts or education or, or medicine or the law or politics, whatever area God's called you, you're free to go serve God and represent him in your sphere of influence. So 
What does that have to do with why are we here today? The question we have for us today is why are we here? Why do we do what we want to do? Well, here's the reason and the purpose for the church. We're going to talk about that for the next 15 minutes or so. Now, the church in, in Greek, in the New Testament, the church is ecclesia. That means the called out ones. The church is people. The church is not an institution. If, when I studied sociology in college, the church was an institution. The government is an institution. No, the church may be an institution but to some, but to us, the church is people, God's people who love him. We're not an institution. We are a group of people who love God. Now, in the Bible, we see two versions or two pictures of the church, two types of church. First is the church universal. The church universal is all believers from all time. That is Christ's body, his bride. That's the church. When we say the church, uh, the only other expression we see in the New Testament is local churches. That means people like this gathering together in a local basis. They live close to each other and they love God and they worship the Lord together. They hear the word preached. They grow and mature. They, they impact their sphere of influence in that area. And that's the only two pictures we see. What's the purpose of the church in, um, in our lives. Well, God's purpose for the church is that the church would be His plan, His only plan for displaying His glory to the nations, for, for declaring to all powers and principalities that Jesus Christ is Lord. The church is God's plan. That's the way that He's making Himself known to the world. That's His plan. There's no other plan. In Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 11, Paul said, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God always had this plan, and it wasn't revealed until after Jesus. And so Paul has this mandate to reveal God's plan. And it says in verse 10, God's purpose in all this was to use the church. That's us, people who love Jesus. To use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no other plan. We're it. Jesus spent three and a half years in his ministry with his disciples. He had 12 disciples. He had about 70 close followers. He had a crowd of about 500 that really uh, stayed close to him. But he, he imparted to them, and he says, now you go do it. And they go, what do we do? So he said, you're the plan. You're it. You're my people. And so that's the wonderful uh, discovery, the wonderful adventure we see in the New Testament. So why are we here today? Why do we do what we do? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we get up and pray? Why do we be nice to our neighbor? Why do we go to classes, study the Bible, why do we go to Westside 101? Why would we go to that what's my type, Dealey Bob? What are we doing all this for? Why do we get our kids? Why do we, you know, why are we here? Have you ever asked yourself that? There is a reason. And God's plan and his purpose was formed before the beginning of the foundation of this world. And so when we see from his perspective, it's so awesome. It's great to see perspective. Terry and I fly a lot. And um, a few years ago, we were flying east. And the pilot said, ladies and gentlemen, out of your left-hand window, you can see 
uh, what's that? Durango. Durango. No, that's the right hand window. It was Durango, uh, New Mexico. And out of the right hand was Colorado. What's that one on the west side of the Rockies? Somewhere. Grand Junction. I said Grand Junction. So and you look out there. I stood up in the aisle. I looked out. Of the, yeah, you can see these two cities. Out. And I look on the map, and they're about 200 miles apart from each other. And if you're down on the ground, you cannot see those cities. But when your perspective changes and and you get his viewpoint, so to speak. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a big uh, viewpoint of what's the reason we're doing what we do here today. Why do we go to home group? Many of us are going to go to our small groups this afternoon. Some of them are earlier because it might snow tonight. And so uh, why do we do all these things? All right. I'm going to tell you the end first. I'll tell you the end first. The last two chapters in the Bible are a beautiful picture of what's to come, a picture of a glimpse into eternity. The first couple chapters in the Bible were a glimpse of God walking and talking with men and women in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the picture. The last two chapters are a picture of what's going to happen in eternity. All this in between where we live now, all this in between time, is where sin has its effects on us and, and there's uh, turmoil around the world. But we get to look at the end. We get to know the end result. And here's what it says. This is the revelation of Jesus uh, to John. It's the revelation of Jesus that John uh, wrote down. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people and he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now all of this is rich, beautiful imagery. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but this is a picture. And he's talking about the bride, that's his church. Jesus is the groom, so to speak. And we're his bride, and this is going to be a great wedding feast. It's going to be a great celebration of coming together, the consummation of the ages. A few years ago, I had the privilege of uh, marrying my daughter and her husband. And, and, and when I see uh, Heather, when she was preparing for her wedding, preparing to walk down the aisle months and months ahead of time, she had every detail written down. Who's going to stand here? Who's going to do this? Who's going to be over here? Which, you know, flowers and, you know, and cake and, you know, and, and uh, dress, all that kind of stuff. Every single detail was written down. She was preparing herself to meet her groom. And then I have the privilege of standing next to the groom so often. And everybody's eyes are on the bride, looking at the bride. And, and oftentimes I'll pull my camera out and just take a picture of the groom because more often than not, because you're all looking at her, there's a tear coming down his face because he's anticipating uh, this love relationship, this wonderful thing. And Jesus is anticipating you. He's looking forward to you. And we as the bride, are, we're being made ready uh, to come into his presence. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Then the angel showed me 
a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates. Those are the people that have been declared righteous before Almighty God, when Jesus forgave their sin, they are declared righteous. There is no spot in them. There is no sin in them. And they can be ushered into the presence of the King. They'll be permitted to enter through the gates of the city, eat fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I Jesus have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. The last prayer, recorded prayer in the Bible. Come quickly, King James says. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. Jesus wins. At the end of the age, we will come together with him for all of eternity. Yeah, we might be going through it now. But there's this wonderful promise of future and hope with him. We'll be reunited with loved ones. We'll see and talk and walk and talk with Jesus like Adam and Eve walked and talked with him in the Garden of Eden. So when we raise our perspective, we get our nose out of the nitty-gritty. Yeah, and we can see, okay, that's the end. All right, we've got to go through this stuff. What are we doing here? Why are we here? Here's my take. Now, if you're a theologian, you might come up with five points instead of six. You might come up with eight points instead of six. I have six here. You can subdivide them if you want, but this is our take, all right? So number one, the reason we do church, the reason we exist, the reason we're here as God's people is, one, because we are being prepared as his bride, to prepare the bride. In 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. In Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. So the reason we're here is because we are going through this preparation time to be united with Jesus for all of eternity. Isn't that great? Great? 
It's a little bit up there, right? So let's narrow it down. How do we do that? We got six ways to, to, to describe it here. How do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves? Well, Jesus was very um, clear when he gave us a commandment, what to do until he comes back. He told us in the great, what we call the Great Commission, he told us to disciple the nations. That's number two, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. That word nations in Greek is ethnos or every ethnicity. So make disciples of all people groups everywhere baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we call the Great Commission. It's His mission, and we are on co-mission with Him. And our, that's our mandate. There's, there's nothing that has ever been rescinded about that. That's our great commandment that we must live by. And the, the way we do that is we live out, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So we fulfill the Great Commission by living out the Great Commandment. That's still pretty big for little old West Side Church stuck in the foothills of Northern California near the Sierra Nevada mountains, right? So let's go to the next step. How do we disciple the nations? Well, we look at the New Testament and we see what did they do. That's why we call ourselves a New Testament church. Because we look in the New Testament of the Bible and say, how did they do church? How did Jesus train his disciples? What did they do? Well, here's what they didn't do. They didn't start the Apostle Paul Ministries Incorporated. They didn't. What they did was they were witnesses of what Jesus did, and they went around and told people, and people turned their lives over to Christ. They gathered a group of people together. They started meeting as local churches in cities everywhere. By the end of the first century, they turned the whole world, the whole known world, upside down. And here's how they did it. They planted church, churches. And planting a church, some, that's like lingo. That means you tell people about Jesus till you got a group of people. And then you start meeting together regularly. You pray together, read His Word, study get encouraged, try to impact your sphere of influence, bring more people in. And then you get enough people and you go plant another church somewhere else. That's what they did. In places like Antioch, Asia, Babylon, Cancrea, Caesarea, Cilicia, Corneth, Ephesus, Galatia, Galilee, Jerusalem, Joppa, Judea, Laodicea, Pergamos, Philadelphia, Samaria, Sardis, Smyrna, Syria, Thessalonica, and Thyatira, to name a few. All you see in the New Testament, how do they disciple the nations? How do they go out, therefore go and make disciples of all nations? They went out and they told people about Jesus. They gathered a group of people together for this thing called the church. There's the universal church, all believers from all time, and the other expression of the church are local congregations, groups of fellowships of believers doing this thing that God called us to do, to impact uh, the nations and to start first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, McDonald's stole this idea. They became the world's largest restaurant, not by having a counter that's a mile long and having 10,000 cash registers and you go through the line and you say, I think I'll have a like this and it's there. And they served 10 or 20,000 people a day. That's not how they did it. They went and put a McDonald's everywhere. Even little cities like Placerville have two of them. 
every major city, there are every few blocks. And all around the world, Terry and I have traveled all around the world. There's McDonald's everywhere. There's McDonald's in Russia. There's a McDonald's in Brazil. I mean, once we were in Brazil for three weeks, and it was like really strange stuff. And, and we got back to the airport. We never go to McDonald's here. We go, oh, McDonald's, you know, like something we know and we're familiar with. And so, but they're everywhere. They stole this idea. Not to have one big, huge thing. Like this, this church is, is pretty um, effective and impactful in this area, but we're going to be more impactful. We've participated in four church plants in the last few years, getting churches out in San Jose and in Denver and in Texas, a couple of them in Texas. And, and uh, we want to plant more. We want to see people in this church in this congregation, go out and be part of business people, educators, people who can relocate and be part of a just just butts in seats. That's what new churches need, you know, really. They need people there, and people draw people, and, and it's amazing what God can do in a community when people are radically sold out for Jesus. But that's what the, the early church did. That's what the disciples did. So how do you send out churches unless you're equipping Number four, training and releasing leaders. Equipping, training, and releasing leaders. Now, when we say leader, here's what we mean. Godly, servant-hearted examples. That's what Jesus was. He was a servant-hearted example. He got down on his knees, and he washed first-century street crud off the feet of his disciples. He who created the universe, God Almighty, getting down on his knees, washing feet. And this is what he said, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be a leader in the kingdom, you get ready to serve. Not to be a doormat, but you get ready to be an example and and to serve. Not only that, but we want to develop a whole leadership culture where everybody understands that they're leaders. As believers in this culture, in this day, in this age, Jesus said, you be salt and you be light. That means you be examples. And you represent the goodness of God everywhere you go. And you be that little bit of flavor that stirs the pot, so to speak. That's leadership by example, servant-hearted leadership. And how do you get uh, leaders to release? Unless, number five, you raise up a kingdom of priests. Now this is a, I'd like to spend you know, a day or two on this one. The Bible says that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Now here's what a priest does. A priest represents God to the world. Sort of intermediary. Now we have one great high priest, that's Jesus, and then he called us a kingdom of priests. Each one of us, as a believer, has a mandate to share Jesus and represent Jesus to the world. When the world looks at us, they should be seeing Jesus. When we speak, it should be the things that Jesus would say. When we do things, it should be the stuff that Jesus would do. That's a priest. That's a kingdom of priests. There's nowhere in this New Testament that ever talks about anything like clergy and laity. Oh, they're clergy. Paul, Steve, they have to read their Bibles and then we'll just come and sit, and they'll tell us what it says. There's none of that. We're all responsible yeah, right. to know what's in God's Word. You're responsible to check out what I'm preaching to you right now. You're not off the hook. Right. 
you have a mandate. And so this thing about kingdom of priests, Paul said in Ephesians 4, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Oftentimes that's called the fivefold ministry or the Ephesians 4 ministry. Those are people given as gifts to the church. Their responsibility is to equip God's people or in King James it says equip the saints, that's all of us, the saints, equip God's people to do his work. Who's supposed to do the work? God's people, the saints. Who's, what's the job of the fivefold ministry? To equip the saints to do the works of service. All of us can lay hands on the sick and ask God to heal them. All of us can go visit the down and out and the distraught in hospitals. All of us can visit widows and orphans in their distress. All of us can represent Jesus. All of us can open our Bible and, and start a Bible study at school or at work. All of us can visit our neighbor. All of us can represent him. All of us can do the works. We don't, we don't pay professionals to do it. Probably the best way to uh, example the Ephesians 4 ministry, say take the Ephesians 4 evangelist, a true Ephesians 4 evangelist, is not somebody who just likes to get people saved because we're all supposed to want that. Some of us are better at it than others. And some of us are better at planting seed. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do our part, but God brings the increase. Uh, but say in Ephesians 4, a true Ephesians 4 evangelist, they come into this church and they say they have a couple meetings over the weekend. What they do is they leave a deposit of evangelism. When they leave, we all want to go tell our friends about Jesus. Yeah. They've equipped us to do the work of service. And so that's what we see there. I have a friend, Dudley Daniel. He started the NCMI team that Terry and I are part of. This church is connected to uh, churches around the world. We're, we're run by our own or led by our own eldership team. Uh, but we're in relationship and partnership with churches all around the world. Uh, but he started this team that we're part of. And he's a true apostle, in my opinion. And everybody doesn't have to be an apostle, in your opinion. You know what Paul said? Paul said this. He said, to some, I'm an apostle. What does that mean? To some, he wasn't an apostle. Paul, an apostle? No, Peter, I can see, but not Paul. So anyway, it's to who you're ministering to, is to what they see you as. But I see Dudley as an apostle. Now, when Dudley comes into the church, he's been in this church before. When he leaves, everybody, it doesn't matter what he preaches about. He could have preached about Elizabeth or, or Rebecca or, or Joseph or something. And when he leaves, everybody wants to go plant churches. Why? Because that's his gift uh, to the church, to equip the saints uh, to be uh, doing their part. Now, the devil would like you to take a step backwards and not be a kingdom of priests and just sit back on your laurels and let somebody else do that priesting thing. They can pray. They can do the, read the word and things like that. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That separated the place out here where everybody could go to the Holy of Holies. All right, the priests were out here. One priest maybe once a year would go in here the Holy, Holy of Holies. And uh, you'd probably die if you walked in there and you weren't, uh, didn't do the right sacrifices and things. Now, it, the Bible says, because the veil was torn, that we have direct access into the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? Well, a lot of Christians want to sew that veil back up and keep that separation. No, 
you elders, you be the ones that are the priests. You be the ones that are responsible to go to God's word and ask him what his will is and how does your life fit into that. You be the ones that do those kind of things. We just want to sit here and just... We, we want to stay up late on Saturday night. We don't want to go to bed early so we can come fresh and ready to minister and love on others on Sunday morning. You do that. You see the difference? Now, all the previous four ones above this, that doesn't affect a lot of people, leaders, planning churches, things. This one does. This one does. And he desires a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and you're part of that. How on earth... Are we going to get a kingdom of priests if nobody's ever getting saved? If nobody's ever coming into the kingdom? Number six, the purpose for the church is to evangelize the lost. Tell people about Jesus. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. He is the Lord of the harvest. So, I have a question for us today. Preparing the bride, discipling the nations, planning authentic New Testament churches everywhere, raising up, releasing, training, equipping leaders, uh, raising up a kingdom of priests, and evangelizing the lost, which is the most important thing we do. Here's my take on it. The most important thing we do as a church is to tell people about Jesus, to evangelize the lost, comma, so that we can raise up a kingdom of priests, comma, so that we can equip, train, and release leaders, comma, so that we can plant authentic New Testament churches everywhere, advancing his kingdom, comma, so that we can fulfill the Great Commission of going, therefore, to all people groups everywhere, comma, because Jesus is coming back soon. That's the reason we're here. So every time we gather, every time the worship team comes and practices during the week, every time Sunday school teachers come for training, every time the parking lot guys are out there freezing in the rain, guarding the campus, Every time we gather in small groups and they come to your house and spill on your couch. Every time we are nice to our neighbor, take a meal to a widow down the street, babysit somebody's kids because we know it's the right thing to do, would represent the love of God. Every time, everything we do fits into this whole template of the purpose of the church. And it starts with telling people about Jesus and it ends with Jesus is coming back soon. And we, as his bride, want to be ready. We want to advance the kingdom. Every single person, whether you're an upfront person, a behind-the-scenes person, what your gift is, uh, depending on what it is, everybody has a place. Every, each of you is part of it, Paul said. Each of you has, has a responsibility to do your part so that we're all working and, and doing the works of service that he's called us to do. It it's, gives you motivation because you're not stuck in some corner where nobody sees you. God sees you, of course, but at the same time, you're doing your part. You take one ball bearing out of a wheel, man, you're going to know it's missing. One piece of a jigsaw puzzle. There might be 999 pieces there and in place. What's the first one you notice? The one that's not there. The one that's not doing its part. 
Each of you has a part. Each of you has a responsibility. Each of you has this wonderful opportunity to represent Jesus in your sphere of influence. And I praise God and thank God that so many of you are taking up the charge and advancing his kingdom, moving forward for his glory and for his honor, not ours, but for him. One day we're going to meet him just like a bride meets her husband. And it's going to be the culmination of the ages. There's going to be a huge wedding feast and we get to be part of that. He's chosen us to be part of that and I'm so grateful and so thankful. I want to live a life that pleases him and that honors him. Amen? Father, thanks for this word today for us. I pray that we would respond with a resounding yes. Yes, we love you, God. Yes, we want to please you. Yes, we want to honor you. Not so that you'll save us, but because you've saved us. We do realize that it's your kingdom and your glory and your honor. And God, that's who we want to live for. That's the purpose as to why we're here today. And we do the things that we do. Father, help us to be good workers in the marketplace. Help us to be good students at school. Help us to represent you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.